0: Hello, good afternoon everybody, welcome uh, to this uh, session, um, we'll go ahead and today we'll be talking about uh, optimizing uh, urinary incontinence management. Um, my name is Peter Jepson, I am a urogynecologist from the University of New Mexico. Uh, we have a lot of information to to cover uh, and I'll uh, try to get through all of it without it being too boring. Um, so. Um, As far as our objectives, we're going to discuss current challenges in the management of urinary incontinence and how that impacts clinical and socioeconomic burdens. Um, Evaluate the clinical evidence surrounding the mechanisms of action, efficacy, and tolerability of new and emerging pharmacotherapies, including combination therapies for the management of urinary incontinence. Uh, Discuss the burden of uh, BPH and OAB in male patients and strategies for that condition and then uh, incorporate the latest clinical advancements, uh, cost utility data and quality measurements um, to optimize again urinary incontinence treatments. Um, So urinary incontinence is uh, defined as the involuntary leak of uh, loss of urine and uh, I'm just going to set the the uh, pointer down on that and I'll just ask you to advance slides if that's okay. Uh, But urinary incontinence is involuntary loss of urine. Uh, Patients often report in clinical setting that they leak urine, or they can't control their bladder. Um, Urinary incontinence is a very common condition. It affects uh, 30 to 60 percent of women in the U.S. um, and uh, it it affects about 20 to 30 percent of men in the U.S. uh, with prevalence increasing with age. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, So this uh, is a quality of life issue, right? This is not cancer. It is not life-threatening. But that does not imply or does not mean that it's not a, uh, a big issue for patients. Um, so uh, as, as a quality of life indicators, this affects physical activities, uh, limitations in activity, going to the gym, those types of things, disturbed sleep, getting up to go to the bathroom, uh, being tired all day or having difficulty concentrating. Uh, many patients will avoid uh, sexual, sexual intercourse for fear of leaking during intercourse. Um, patients have to purchase uh, specialized uh, you know, diapers or uh, things to cover their beds. Uh, it results in depression, lack of self-esteem, um, reduces a uh, patient's ability or desire to go out in public. Um, and if they do go out, uh, they, they try to know where the bathrooms are before they, you know, before they, they go somewhere. Um, and then it also impacts uh, work, um, absence from work, decreased productivity, and early retirement. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so as we've discussed, uh, urinary incontinence has a major impact on quality of life a- across the board. Um, and the economic impact in 2014 was estimated to be approximately $20 billion. That's so pretty big. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so to put this in perspective, this is a study that was published in JAMA back in 2016. Um, if you look at this slide just for orientation, uh, going up it increases the, the percentage. Going across gives different... Uh, um, issues associated with quality of life. And, and the, the white-ish box up towards the top is much better than death. Uh, the bottom one, the darkest blue, is much worse than death. And so you can see that bowel or bladder incontinence is to your far left on the screen. Um, and so that is rated more impactful or worse on quality of life. Uh, than being on a breathing machine, not being able to get out of bed, being confused or demented all the time, relying on a feeding tube, uh, needing assisted care, living in a nursing home, being home all day, or at the other end is being in a wheelchair. So again, this is just to to put in perspective the impact this has on quality of life for patients, right? Um, Next slide, please. Yep, yep, it's working now, thanks. Um, so, uh, as far as uh, coping mechanisms, uh, patients will do many different things to try to compensate for the, the lack of urine, right? If, if you leak urine and you can't control it, there are things that you could do to, to help hide it, so wearing dark clothing or bagging clothing so that if the clothing gets wet it's not as noticeable, Uh, using diapers or absorbent products, Uh, again we talked about making sure you know where bathrooms are, restricting fluid intake, uh, carrying extra clothes, those are all things that that patients will do to try to deal with the impact of of urinary leakage. So the ICS defines uh, urinary incontinence uh, based on many different types. Uh, Today we'll be focused on essentially three. So UI or urinary incontinence is kind of an umbrella term for any leakage of urine. Uh, subsets that we'll talk about today are stress urinary incontinence. Uh, stress urinary incontinence is leaking with laughing, coughing, sneezing, jumping. Uh, so, you know, if you go to the gym, uh, our group recently did a study on on patients participate are in women participating in CrossFit, and the vast majority of women that participate in CrossFit have leakage from the, the effort exerted with with uh, you know double unders and those types of things. Uh, urge incontinence is. Uh, uh, the complaint of involuntary leakage with urgency, so the feeling you've got to go, got to go right now, got to run to the bathroom, and you leak before you get there. Um, and then mixed is, is both. So if, if you leak with both laughing, coughing, sneezing, as well as that desire to get to the bathroom and not be able to make it in time, uh, that's mixed incontinence. I, I think it's worth discussing uh, what overactive bladder is, uh, and perhaps this is more for research purposes, uh, but overactive bladder is is a, is a term that incorporates urinary incontinence But doesn't always consist with, doesn't always have a urinary incontinence involved with it. So overactive bladder is urgency and frequency. So you're going to the bathroom frequently, running to the bathroom to get there, but but not necessarily leaking before you get there. And so in research and in, in some of the stuff we'll discuss today, we'll see these terms: OAB dry and OAB wet. OAB dry is if you have urgency, frequency, but you can get to the bathroom before you leak. Whereas OAB wet is you aren't able to get to the bathroom in time and you have an accident before you get there. Um, So as far as the the clinical burden of overactive bladder, uh, the prevalence of overactive bladder is is just in the general population is somewhere around 16%. Um, Again, this increases uh, with age. Uh, Overactive bladder wet or urinary incontinence or, or urge urinary incontinence is more common in women than men and that's based on physiology and anatomy. Uh, The female urethra is about 4 centimeters. The male urethra is about 9 centimeters. And so just based on on the anatomy, uh, leakage is different between the two, but the urgency is is fairly similar. Um, Again, uh, this significantly impacts quality of life and is associated with infections, uh, depression, sleep disturbances, and falls and fractures. Uh, so this is uh, just to kind of put in perspective, you know, mixed urine incontinence is kind of the, the worst of both, right? And kind of like, you know, you see the, the, the person, whoever owned the little white car that stuck down, uh, is very, very unlucky. Uh, people that have mixed urine incontinence are also very unlucky. They have both, and this is a very challenging uh, condition to treat. Um, uh, next slide, please. Um, so uh, urinary incontinence is often underdiagnosed and undertreated. Uh, and there are many reasons for this. Uh, patients may feel reluctant to discuss with their with their healthcare provider, um, or they may think it's just a normal part of aging. You know, they've, they've had they've, for women, they've had babies and that, and as they're getting older, they start to have leakage. Uh, if they talk to friends, many of their friends have similar symptoms. Uh, although many patients don't talk to anyone about it because of embarrassment, uh, there's lack of education about treatment options, um, and then uh, as from the physician's side. Um, Patients, about 85% of patients who report that they got treatment for their symptoms reported they had to bring up the topic with their provider. Uh, and as physicians, you know, in, in clinical practice, it's, it's, we're very busy. We're expected to see a lot of patients. I'm a subspecialist, uh, so what I all I do is I treat, you know, uh, patients with pelvic floor disorders. But for a general practitioner or a primary care physician, they're seeing patients for, you know, a full range of issues, right? Um, blood pressure, diabetes, all those types of things, uh, and you only have a set amount of time with patients. Uh, But I think because of those constraints, um, this typically only is addressed if patients bring it up. Um, And then patients, even if they bring it up to their provider as something that is bothersome to them, uh, they waited at least a year to, to get treatment. Um, and so again, we've already discussed these—you uh, these, uh, know—time constraints, uh, suboptimal treatments. Uh, they think that you know patients should bring it up if it's an issue, and then they also think you know that quality of life issues aren't as important as life-threatening issues. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, as far as urinary incontinence goes, an impact on uh, you know quality of life aside from quality of life. Um, this is associated with patients falling and uh, particularly in nursing homes, is associated with nursing home admissions as well as falling uh, on the way to the bathroom. So you can imagine if you have a, an elderly patient who's uh, you know, trying to get up in the middle of the night and rush to the bathroom to get there before they, they have an accident, uh, you know, they may trip on the rug or fall down and, and uh, uh, break their hip. Um, falls and fractures are very common in the elderly. Uh, Hip fractures associated with a high rate of morbidity and mortality. I think the nine month uh, mortality after a hip fracture in in an institutionalized or in in someone in a nursing home is is about 50%. So it is pretty high morbidity mortality. Um, So, you know, as far as uh, primary care doctors, what what they should know are, you know, what questions to ask, um, what can be done for urinary incontinence or lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, The treatment of urinary incontinence or the evaluation of urinary incontinence is not that complicated, uh, and it can offer significant improvement for patients' lives. Um, And all of this can be offered by the primary care doc. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, So we'll talk about kind of how the bladder works and what is normal, um, and then we'll we'll get into what is abnormal. Uh, The top box, and I think I've got a pointer. So, so the top box, uh, this shows kind of normal bladder function. Bladder capacity should be three to 500 cc's. Uh, the bladder should uh, be able to accommodate and stretch to, to hold urine, and the urethra should be able to, to squeeze to hold tight so the urine doesn't leak. Um, in stress incontinence, uh, the bladder capacity is going to be normal, but the urethra itself is, is weak. And the muscle that, that goes around, and there's different theories, we won't get into all that, uh, but essentially the, the urine comes from the bladder and it leaks out the urethra. The urethra isn't able to coapt or squeeze tightly enough to, to maintain the urine. Um, in urgency, it's, it's more of a storage issue. The bladder is, is a muscle, the detrusor muscle, um, and when you sit down to void, the detrusor muscle squeezes and contracts, and, and it causes you know, micturation or, or voiding. Um, For patients with urgency incontinence, the the bladder muscle will spasm when the patient doesn't want it to, uh, and that will, uh, the the squeezing of the bladder is stronger than the urethra and it will lead to to leakage episodes. And uh, UUI is more associated with kind of large leakage episodes or kind of flooding episodes. So if you're thinking of, you know, patients that wear diapers and that, it tends to be more with UUI as opposed to stress incontinence. Stress incontinence tends to be kind of smaller leakage when you laugh, cough, sneeze, and you know it's going to happen. And then again, mixed incontinence, as we had discussed, is, is a combination of both. Uh, the bladder spasms when you don't want it to, and the urethra is not strong enough to maintain urine in the bladder. Um, so, we'll talk a little bit about uh, BPH and lower urinary tract symptoms. So, uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy is characterized by enlarged but non malignant prostate. Uh, it's an important component of overactive bladder uh, in men. Um, it affects 30% of men and it increases with age by age, uh, you know, by age 90, about 90% of men will have BPH. Um, BPH, uh, the, when the prostate enlarges, it constricts or impinges upon the urethra and it results in a weak urine stream, making it more difficult to empty the bladder and making urine come out more slowly. Um, this also has an impact on quality of life and sexual and psychological dysfunction. Um, and then, as we've discussed, it can cause bladder outlet obstruction or making it difficult to to empty. Um, So normally, the the prostate would uh, produce seminal uh, fluid um, and should not grow into the urethra and not obstruct, Uh, but when it's abnormal or in BPH, it it will obstruct the urine and make it difficult to void. So uh, just kind of uh, to look at, Again, we have kind of storage issues and voiding issues, so when the prostate gets enlarged, it, it can affect both. Um, so as far as the, the differential diagnoses for uh, for voiding dysfunction, if, if uh, a male patient is having a, kind of a weak flow or the urine's coming out very slowly, think the prostate. If they're voiding in small amounts, it, it could be a bladder issue, the bladder is not strong enough to empty, or it could be that the bladder is obstructed by, by, the, by the prostate. Um, if there's leakage of urine, then you could think uh, either bladder from the overactive bladder, the urgency incontinence, or the, the urethral sphincter, such as stress incontinence. Um, so overactive bladder and uh, BPH can coexist. Uh, and you see a little bend diagram there. So this is a, just kind of a simple diagram to, to, to demonstrate or kind of to show you know, what can be done for lower urinary, lower urinary tract symptoms in, male, in men as well. Um, and you know, you, you could refer a patient straight away for for treatment, uh, but there's a lot that can be done by primary care physicians before they need to get to referral. So you know, sometimes a patient will ask for a referral straight away, and that's okay. Uh, but otherwise, you know, a, a focused history and physical exam, uh, you know, check for blood sugar, make sure they're not diabetic. Uh, diabetes can cause overactive bladder symptoms. Uh, When blood sugars are high, sugar spills through the kidneys, goes down to the bladder, irritates the bladder. It's also an osmotic. It pulls fluid into the bladder uh, that makes the bladder overactive. Um, Patients don't have to be treated for this condition, as we discussed. It's a quality-of-life issue. It's not cancer. It's not life-threatening. So some patients, after knowing options, will choose to wait, uh, but they should be offered treatments. Um, And then, again, we can get down to referral to subspecialists or specialists. Uh, so times when a patient should be referred uh, for subspecialty care, for additional care, is if they have a history of urinary tract infections, if they have a history of radiation. Um, radiation is a treatment for cancer. It uh, stops dividing cells and thereby affects cancer cells preferably, preferentially over normal tissue, but it does have a very big impact on normal tissue. It decreases the bladder's ability to contract and the urethra's ability to maintain urine. Uh, so radiation causes a lot of problems. Um, hematuria should be evaluated to rule out an underlying malignancy or cancer. Um, and then again, neurologic issues, uh, meadal stenosis, pelvic pain, are all indications for referral. Um, so sometimes, you know, a patient will come and they say they're having urinary leakage. It can be a pretty simple thing of, you know, do you leak with laughing, coughing, sneezing, or do you leak with urgency and running to the bathroom? Uh, There may not be an underlying etiology that's easy to identify, um, but that doesn't mean that you can't start treatment. Um, So I I recently conducted a systematic review on the treatment of urinary incontinence in women. Uh, This was published last year. It was funded by the HRQ and uh, PCORI. Um, It was an update of a 2012 study, Um, so I'll have some data in this presentation from that systematic review as well as some other data. Uh, But essentially, uh, you know, we updated the data from 2012 um, looking at uh, outcomes, quality of life, adverse events. Um, That particular study is looking specifically at the non-surgical treatments of urinary incontinence. Uh, The non-surgical treatments were divided into either pharmacologic or uh, non-pharmacologic, looking at, at ways to treat. Um, We will talk about surgical options in this presentation, but those were not included in that systematic review. Um, Next slide, please. Um, so, uh, the treatment categories that we used for that systematic review are based on the NICE guidelines uh, and the AUA guidelines. The National Institute of Health and Care Excellence is uh, basically the national guidelines from the UK. Uh, and they, they publish information on, on the treatment of stress incontinence that is systematized. The AUA also does the same for overactive bladder and they have tears. Um, so they have, uh, you know, first line, second line, third line treatments, and we're going to go through those today. I think one of the questions that we had at the pretest was uh, related to, to second tier uh, options. Um, uh, but again, uh, behavioral therapy, uh, which we'll get to in just a minute, we'll kind of go through all these. But behavioral therapy can be a treatment for both stress and urge. Uh, neuromodulation can also be a treatment for both. Um, So in that systematic review, going through all the data, and I don't know if you guys know what systematic reviews are. Systematic review means you look at all of the information that has been published on a topic in the medical literature. So uh, you essentially go through all publications um, in any language, uh, in any journal, uh, that has to do with the topic. Uh, for that particular topic, again, we were looking at urinary incontinence in women. Uh, but uh, going through that, we, know, we identified that pelvic floor muscle therapy or kind of Kegels or physical therapy, those are other words that are used, but pelvic floor muscle therapy um, and vaginal estrogen or pelvic floor muscle therapy and vaginal estrogen with, par- with pessaries were used as treatments. Uh, hormones, uh, primarily estrogen or estrogen derivatives, uh, can be used for the treatment. Intravesical pressure release, this is a device that can be placed in the bladder uh, and it... Um, it uh, shrinks, or it's in, impinged by the pressure more readily than urine, so it shrinks. Instead of urine coming out, it basically is a kind of a pressure valve within the bladder. Um, periurethral bulking agents, which are agents that can be injected around the urethra to help the urethra close more tightly, um, and then alpha agonists such as duloxetine. Um And uh, just you know, alpha agonists are not—they're uh, not approved by the FDA in, in for use of. Uh, stress incontinence in the U.S., but they are in Europe, and because we're looking at the world literature, not just U.S. literature, it is included in this review. Um, so for the treatment of urgency incontinence, we have anticholinergics, which are the same as antimuscarinics, uh, Behavioral therapy, hormones again. Botox, which is on a bind- toxin A, uh, the same stuff that people get in there for, for cosmetic injections that can be injected in the bladder. Um, antiepileptics, such as pregabalin, and then uh, beta-agonists. Um, and then for both, behavioral therapy, uh, things like bladder training, uh, and I have a slide on this in just a minute, but, but bladder training, biofeedback, these, these types of things, neuromodulation, again, which we'll get to towards the end of the discussion, um, neuromodulation with behavioral therapy, and then vaginal estrogen. So um, before we go through the results of the systematic review, I'm going to kind of review what these individual treatments are uh, so that you know what they are when we discuss the results. So... Um, Basically, behavioral therapy for overactive bladder. There, there are many different options that can be done that don't require medications, uh, that don't really require much intervention. Uh, you know, as far as evaluation, uh, having a patient keep a bladder diary can be very helpful. Uh, I'll often see patients in clinic and I ask them, you know, when do you leak urine, and they can't tell me. I say, do you leak with laughing, coughing? So do you leak when you stand up? Uh, do you leak when you're running to the bathroom? And then they have uh, some patients have difficulty describing when the leakage occurs. And so, giving them a diary and just saying, you know, keep a diary for the next three days. Pay attention to, you know, how much you're drinking, how often you go to the bathroom, when you leak, and what you were doing when you leak. And that can be very helpful to, to differentiate what type of uh, incontinence they have. Um, uh, fluid di- dietary management. Sometimes patients will cut back on fluid intake, and that can be helpful. I'll see patients in clinic and they tell me that they have to get up four times a night to go to the bathroom. I live in New Mexico. New Mexico is a very arid climate. You know, I ask them, do you have water at your bedstand?" And They'll say, yeah, I wake up, I go to the bathroom, and then I have a big glass of water, and I go back to sleep. And I tell them, well, you know, we, we could talk about medications or things, but if you cut out that water at night, you might not have to get up so much, you know, or cut out fluids you know, three hours before you go to bed. Um, so there are some pretty simple things. Uh, patients, uh, some patients, uh, you know, they just forget to go to the bathroom. They're at work, and they get busy, and they say, you know, I go to the bathroom every four or five hours and I'm fine, but then at that last minute I just can't make it and I leak before I get there. Or I'll see patients who are in nursing homes and you know they they're confused and they just don't remember to go to the bathroom. They'll come in with their caregiver or with a son or a daughter and say, you know, they they're leaking all the time and they, they just don't they don't ever go to the bathroom. And so we you know we'll talk about time voiding and you know, you set a clock and you can go to the bathroom every two, two and a half hours. If you're leaking every three to four hours, go every two to two and a half and you you could probably avoid those leakage episodes. So, so there are many things that can be done to help prevent leakage you know, before getting to, to medications or those other things. So the, these are all considered kind of first tier by the AUA guidelines. Um, so again, we, we've talked uh, somewhat about fluid intake. Um, dietary, uh, you know, uh, caffeine is a diuretic, alcohol is a diuretic. Doesn't mean you can't do those things, but I'll talk to patients and they say they have a pot of coffee in the morning, they're going to the bathroom every you know, 30 minutes in the morning. One, they're drinking a lot of fluid, and one they're ta- the other, they're taking a lot of caffeine. So we'll talk about you know, perhaps decreasing coffee or trying decaf. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that you guys shouldn't do that. I see that everyone's got tea on their table, right? So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but just you know be aware that caffeine is a diuretic. Alcohol is also a diuretic. Uh, some patients will notice that artificial sweeteners are irritants to the bladder as well, Splenda sweet and low. There's not a lot of great data on that, but it's easy to cut it out and see if your symptoms improve. And if they do, then you can consider whether or not you like the you know, Splenda more and you like going to the bathroom, um, and then timed voids. We, we kind of talked about already. <clears throat> so uh, this this slide basically shows that uh, you know if you have a combination of, of behavioral uh, therapy with, with uh, medications uh, that you can get improved results. And so this is kind of a transition because we're going to move on to medications next. Uh, but uh, you you do this. You, there is demonstrated improvement. uh, with with behavioral therapies such as we've discussed, as well as with medications, when you combine them, uh, you get improvement in both. Uh, And this has been shown across the board in many different studies. I was just at a conference for what I do last week, uh, and there was a study showing neuromodulation or inner stim, which we'll get to, also performs better if if it's coupled with physical therapy. Um, So physical therapy or behavioral therapy can be very helpful. Um, so as far as medications, uh, there are many different medications to choose from. Uh, they're often called anti- anticholinergics, which is I've been calling them, or anti-muscarinics. They're the same thing. It depends on which receptor they're impacting in the bladder. Uh, and a muscarinic is a, a specific receptor uh, within the anticholinergic class. But anyways, there's, there's about six available. There's two of them that are topical. One's a gel, uh, one's a patch. The patch you don't need a prescription for. It's just over the counter. Uh, there's a beta agonist, and we're going to look at uh, pictures that kind of show where all these work in the bladder in just a minute. Uh, but all of these have been shown to be effective for the treatment of overactive bladder. Um, and uh, typically, uh, you know, if if you look at the Cochrane review, which is a systematic review, the all Cochrane's come out of the UK, but. In, uh, anyways, if you look at the Cochrane, the Cochrane does not demonstrate that any medication is better than any other medication. They're all effective, but in any given patient, you might find one that works better than another. So it becomes kind of tailored treatment and trial and error for, for, the, for our patients. Um, so this is a, kind of a schematic of the bladder. Um, so you can see that the acetylcholine uh, comes into the muscarinic receptors, and that's why anticholinergics or anti-muscarinics are kind of the same thing. It affects the same receptor on the bladder. Um, and, and blocking that, or an anti-cholinergic, blocking that receptor, anti-muscarinic, will, will decrease bladder contractility, and it can decrease overactive bladder issues. Um, a beta agonist does the same thing as with a different nerve receptor, uh, and we'll talk about these in just a minute. But both both of those lead to um, uh, decreased leakage episodes. Um, so I don't. Do you guys care about drugs and dosing? Probably not. So um, there are different drugs that can be given with different doses. Um, here, Oxitrol is the patch. You can buy this at Target or Walmart or you know, wherever you shop, uh, CVS. It's about $30 a month. Uh, you wear a patch uh, twice a week. Um, it's, uh, there are benefits uh, to that over some of the others. Uh, we'll get into side effects in just a minute. Uh, but Oxytrol tends to have less side effects uh, because it avoids the liver. The liver is meant to detoxify things we take in. You think alcohol, right? And you're kind of killing your liver. Uh, so if you can take something transdermally, it gets into the bloodstream, it can get to the end organs before the liver, liver detoxifies it. And so that's why Oxytrol is over the counter because the doses are lower, side effects tend to be less. Um, so, again, uh, getting back to the, the systematic review that, that uh, we conducted, um, again, this is just kind of to provide reference. You know, we followed the NICE guidelines and the AUA guidelines uh, for first and second line therapies and third therapies. So, for stress urinary incontinence, uh, first and second line treatments, behavioral therapy with or without hormones, uh, primarily estrogen, vaginal estrogen, was more effective than alpha agonists or hormones in an improving cure. So, again, behavioral therapy can be very helpful. Um, Alpha agonists were more effective than hormones for improvement. Again, alpha agonists uh are not approved for use in the U.S., although they can be used off-label. Um, just as an aside, many patients who have urinary leakage have depression. Uh, deloxetine, which is an SNRI, which is used for depression, can also help urinary incontinence. So sometimes, you know, I'll talk to patients, you know, if they, if they have depression, you, you may consider talking to your primary care doctor or your psychiatrist, whoever you're seeing, about, about being on deloxetine instead of another type of medication, because there is data from the literature that it, that it can be effective. Um, third line options, the, the pressure release devices that we discussed uh, are more effective than hormonal th- uh, treatment. And uh, periurethral bulking was less effective with higher adverse events. Um, again, uh, uh, periurethral bulking is, uh, there's different uh, substances g- that can be injected around the urethra that help the, the urethra coapt, uh, which is a big word to mean close, um, but they, they tended to have more erosion and more complications, and it's a temporary uh, repair. The, the bulking tends to last for about a year, so it's not long-term. Um, for urgency incontinence, uh, first and second-line treatments, behavioral therapy was more effective than anticholinergics for cure. Um, although the anticholinergics did demonstrate improvement as well, the behavioral therapy was was more effective. Um, and then, as far as third-line treatments, neuro, uh, neuromodulation and Botox were both uh, more effective than no treatment. Um, and Botox may be more effective than the neuromod uh, than neuromodulation uh, for cure. Uh, and there's another slide that I have towards the end that talks about that. So, you know, right, so far we've kind of talked about efficacy, but efficacy is only half the story, right? As a clinician, when I'm seeing patients and we're discussing options uh, for treatment, uh, you know, I can't just tell them that these are the good things that can happen and leave out all the bad things that can happen, right? You're only getting half the story. So we'll, we'll kind of talk through some of the, the, the risks uh, that can occur with the anticholinergics or antimuscarinics, uh, uh, very common side effects, dry eyes, dry mouth. Uh, some patients will get headaches, that's not as common. Blurred vision, dry eyes can occur. Uh, and then mental status changes can occur. Um, uh, so things that can be done for the constipation and the dry mouth. Um, constipation is, is common in the population in general. Uh, dietary fiber is the first line of treatment. If you were to go see a colorectal surgeon or a gastroenterologist and you're having constipation or diarrhea, they'd put you on fiber. Um, uh, how, how am I doing on time? As a, uh, just as an aside, it's recommended that a merit that, that people get, 25 to 35 grams of fiber per day. The average American gets eight. I have no idea what you guys get in your diets, but in the U.S. we tend to eat highly processed foods and that kind of stuff, and not a lot of fruits and vegetables, so we're not getting a whole lot in our diet. So um, dietary fiber can be supplemented. Uh, you know, They sell bread that has four grams of fiber per slice. There's Metamucil, psyllium, all that kind of stuff that could be supplemented. Uh, but for patients on, on the anticholinergics, those are... Uh, some simple things that could be done. Of course, you have to take fluid intake with the fiber. Fiber is an uh, osmotic, it pulls fluid and keeps fluid in the intestines to keep the stools bulked and soft. Um, so if you're not drinking fluids, uh, you know, the, the, even if you're on fiber, you won't necessarily have the effect that you're looking for. As far as the dry mouth issues go, uh, there are lubricants that can be used, avoiding alcohol-based mouthwash, uh, taking small sips of water. Again, if you're having a lot of urinary incontinence, uh, I don't tell patients to fluid restrict, but I don't want patients being very liberal with what they're drinking either, because they're gonna have to go to the bathroom more often. Um, And then sugar-free candies and gum, and I emphasize the sugar-free, just because otherwise you run into dental caries and that kind of stuff, if you always have sugar in your mouth you get cavities. So, uh, you know, as far as contraindications for the the anti muscarinics, uh, you know, if a patient has urinary retention or gastric retention, if they have, you know, slow transit bowel constipation or those types of things, um, or if if they're in retention, uh, which we're not talking about today, but some patients will have neurologic or non neurologic issues that will impact the bladder and not allow the bladder to empty. If you have a patient whose bladder is not emptying, the bladder overdistends; it gets full. They're going to the bathroom every 15 minutes because the bladder can't hold anymore. They void very small volumes, um, and then they go back to, to void a little bit more, you know, in 15 minutes. Putting them on an anticholinergic or an antimuscarinic would not be a good idea because it'll make it more hard; it'll make it harder for them to empty, right? And so you need the, the underlying. Um, you're not treating the underlying cause, um, and then there's some other kind of uh, rare, rarer complications: angioedema. Uh, bladder outlet destruction that we talked about. Narrow-angle glaucoma is something to remember. Um, if, if a patient has untreated narrow-angle glaucoma, the anticholinergics are a contraindication. It can, it can uh, lead to increased pressure in the eye and, and cause blindness. Um, so I, I always ask patients if they have glaucoma before starting an anticholinergic. Um, so in 2015, the, the Beers criteria came out. Uh, Beers criteria, looking at all the different anticholinergic medications, um, and discussing the, the the issues that can relate to, to elderly patients on these medications, um, and they recommend uh, you know avoiding them because of the risk of delirium, dementia, or cognitive impair. Um, Uh, And so, just as a list, I mean, there there are a lot of different medications that are included in anticholinergics. For what we're talking about today, it's the the overactive bladder medications. But there are a lot of antidepressants. There there are a lot of medications in general, anti-epileptic medications uh, that that are all you know anticholinergic medications or have anticholinergic properties. Um, So, more recently, last year there was a publication in the British Medical Journal. This year there's a publication in JAMA, again, highlighting the impact of combination therapy with many different anticholinergic medications, and those were published by internal medicine doctors or primary care docs that are kind of looking at all treatment across the board. Uh, And again, patients who are on longer-term anticholinergic or are on higher doses, from either the dose they're on, or from combination medication therapies, have higher risks of developing uh, uh, dementia or memory issues in the future. Um, and for the medications we're talking about, the odds ratios are somewhere, you know, from one to three, which. I don't know if those mean anything to you guys, but uh, there, there is a risk there. It doesn't mean that they, they can't be used or shouldn't be used, uh, but in my clinical practice when I'm seeing patients, I am telling them that uh, you know, there is the possibility association of, of uh, future dementia, and some people recommend if you have a family history, maybe they shouldn't be on them, uh, but this is still this is a kind of an evolving topic. Um, so, and, uh, there's only one option uh, for uh, an oral medication that is not an anticholinergic, and that is mirabegron. Uh, it's a beta-3 agonist, um, so I got the pointer. So again, um, if I look on this one, so we have the anticholinergics, which are the light blue one up here, that's what we've already discussed. Uh, the, the beta agonists impact the, the norepinephrine uh, uh, receptors of the bladder, and so they're beta agonists, and they, they can re- uh, ca- help the bladder relax, uh, increase in bladder capacity, and they're, they're used uh, once a day. Um, so in humans, there are beta-1, beta-2, beta-3 receptors. Uh, the bladder is primarily beta-3, so the beta-3 agonist uh, preferentially targets the bladder. Um, one thing that you do have to be aware of with, with uh, this medication um, is that it can cause uh, blood pressure issues. I don't know if, anyone's on here, if anyone here is on a beta blocker, but there are a lot of beta blockers that are used for heart rate control or for blood pressure issues. Um, and so, you know, if, if I see a patient and they're on a beta blocker, it seems silly to put them on a beta agonist because those medications are kind of uh, in ap- opposition to one another. Uh, but aside from the blood pressure issues, in, in general, it's, it's a safe medication. It was approved by the FDA in 2012. Um, the, the issue I run into in my clinical practice is cost. Um, and because it's a newer medication, it tends to be more expensive. Um, and often, if I'll put a patient on um, uh, Mirabegron, I'll get a, a letter from the insurance company saying, you know, have you considered other options and they want us to, to try something else. And I understand cost, you know, cost is a, a real issue. Um, but then, you know, you're also trying to balance, you know, patients who have not had benefit from other treatments or patients who, uh, you know, have cognitive uh, concerns or issues. And so, uh, but anyways, this, this can be a good option. Um, and this is just a study that, that shows that the, between the baseline to end of treatment, um, that uh, uh, on this side, uh, the, um, you have a control and you have um, the, the group that got, um, and this was Vesicare. And mirabegron so um the um uh, so they, they they got improvement over placebo um and the the con the comparison between the the solifenacin and the mirabegron is is pretty uh, comparable or fairly similar um and this uh, shows similar um so, um, again, we've already talked about common side effects of the mirabegron. It uh, can lead to, to hypertension for some patients. Um, all of the medications used to treat urinary incontinence can, are associated with uh, UTIs. Um, uh, some patients will get headaches. Um, uh, and then I think, I don't know that we need to go over any of this stuff. So um, you know that that begs the question. You know, if there's two different receptors, antimuscarinics or anticholinergics, as well as the the, the beta receptors and norepinephrine receptors, uh, could could both be used at the same time? Um, and the answer is yes. There is a there have been a, a couple of large trials, we'll discuss two. Uh, but in this study, they were looking at solafinicin, um, and patients would be on the solifenacin for four weeks. If they did not get adequate improvement, they'd go on to, to one of the other three tiers. They'd go to combination of the, the mirabegron with uh, the solafinicin, uh, solifenacin 5 milligrams, and solifenacin 10 milligrams. Um, and the, the results of the study showed that the combination therapy, in general, outperformed uh, monotherapy. Uh, and so uh, here is the, the five and the 10 of the uh and this is the combined uh, treatment, uh, and again this is combined with five and 10. So um, for, for some patients who are not getting adequate response with, with uh, monotherapy, they may, they may benefit from a combination therapy. Um, Uh, And then the the Synergy trial is another large trial that was published in the British Journal of uh, Urology uh, back in 2017. There have been multiple studies that have come out from this uh, that are published. But uh, at at any rate, it it shows similar that the Mirabegron and Solofinacin both can be good, Uh, combination uh, may be a little bit better. Um, So, as far as optimizing treatments for overactive bladder, you know, it comes back to the individual patient. You know, when counseling patients on these issues, uh, you know, I I try to ask them, you know, how much does it bother you and what do you want to do about it? And for some patients, I'll talk about all these options and they tell me they don't want to do anything. I'm like, okay, come back and see me if you decide you want to do something. And other patients want to try everything, or some patients come to me and they've already tried everything. And then it's like, okay, you've already done all these things. What else can we do? Um, But, uh, you know, as far as uh, the medications go, start with the lowest dose, titrate up, um, and then, you know, talk about medication adherence. Um, I have a slide here in a minute that that shows that the patients don't tend to stay on their medications uh, uh, very long. I think it's the next slide and maybe a couple ahead. But uh, at any rate, the the medication adherence uh, can be impacted by effectiveness. Uh, Patients will come and they say, you know, things have gotten a little bit better, but I'm still going to the bathroom all the time and I'm still leaking. And so then, you know, well, you've had some some improvement. Is it worth the dry mouth or the, the side effects that go along with that? And for some patients it is, but for some patients it isn't. And some patients will come back and say, I haven't gotten any response and say, well, we should stop the medication and try something else. We've already talked about the adverse events. Um, <clears throat> we've talked about uh, multiple drug interactions, other medications, we've talked about cost and all these things that, that kind of go into, into this. As far as other factors, patient age impacts their ability or willingness to stay on a medication, as does their gender, if they're employed. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that go into patients' decisions as to whether or not they should stay on a medication. Um, so, for patients who are unsatisfied with the second line therapy, uh, there are third line options for overactive bladder for urgency incontinence. And, and that's sacral nerve stimulation or, or neuromodulation, uh, the percutaneous uh, uh, tibial nerve stimulation, which is also neuromodulation, um, or onobotulinum toxin. Uh, and I don't know how many of you guys know about TENS units and those kinds of things. It's a, you basically put electricity, or magnetism can be used as well. It's all part of the electromagnetic spectrum. But you can put electricity different places, and electricity will go through and kind of modulate the nerves. With the sacral nerve modulation and with the percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation, or PTNS, um, you're actually stimulating specific nerves. And, I don't go into a whole lot of detail on those, but it's kind of like a tens unit. Uh, The one is implanted, and the other is done through an acupuncture needle. And then Botox is injected directly into the bladder. And so, uh, for patients who have not responded uh, appropriately to 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 medications or behavioral therapy, in that uh, you know we really should move on because there are additional options that can be effective. So refractory urgency incontinence uh, is a patient who has not responded well to appropriate behavioral therapy or the the medications. In real life, uh, you know, it's patients who don't respond to medications, patients who can't tolerate medications or who don't take the medications, they can't afford them. Uh, patients who have contra- contraindications to medications and so they, they can't use them. Patients who don't want to take medications, I see patients saying, oh, I'm on enough medications I don't want anymore. Or there aren't on any and they don't want to take anymore. Um, or you know, the, their insurance doesn't cover, it's too expensive, you know, all, all those kinds of things. And then as we discussed, there are a lot of patients who get some response but inadequate response. And so then what do you do with them? Do you just tell them, well, you know, we did the best we could, good luck, you know? I don't, you know, there, there are other options. So um, as far as the, the AUA guidelines, um, again, neuromodulation is a treatment option for, for, camp, for patients who did not respond well to second, first or second-line therapies that are willing to undergo a surgical procedure. Um, I don't think I put in many slides regarding this, but uh, neuromodulation is a, it's a neurostimulator. The, the lead wire goes through the... The sacrum, the, the S3 foramina of the of the, of the lower back, uh, and then it attaches to a, a very small device that weighs about as much as four quarters. That's implanted in the posterior hip. It's made by the same company that makes a pacemaker for the for the heart. If you guys have ever seen those, I tell patients it's like a pacemaker for the bladder. Um, it's a fairly small device. It can't be seen through the skin, but it is it is effective. Um, you, the, the goal is 50% improvement, but many patients will notice a 90% improvement. Um, it's made by that one's made by Medtronic. There's a It has not had any competition. Axonics is a new company that's coming out that has a rechargeable one. Medtronic is going to rechargeable as well. Uh, So there's there's, uh, actually some stuff changing in the neuromodulation front. Uh, But but it can be a good option for patients. The the peripheral tibial nerve stimulation is uh, it's basically an acupuncture needle it's a 34 gauge needle it's placed in the the inner ankle and again it's attached to a tens unit uh, the um, electric stimuli is done for 30 minutes once a week for 12 weeks and then monthly thereafter is what the what the studies have shown um so that that's it can be a good option but but patients have to live close enough to the hospital and have to be willing to come back to, to a clinic visit you know once a week um, and in new mexico where i practice you know sometimes patients will travel from a very far distance you know Four or five hours is not uncommon because we're a, a big state and we serve the surrounding areas as well. Um, and so, you know, for them to come back weekly would not be feasible. Um, and then uh, Botox, which we already talked about, Botox is a, is, a, is a good option. Um, the side effects from Botox, really the main side effect from Botox is Botox can sometimes be too effective is the way I describe it to patients. And it can make it so that the bladder doesn't work well and the patients uh, can't pee on their own. So there's a a 5% risk of urinary retention at three months after Botox. Um, The recommendation with Botox is to teach all patients how to perform self-cath in case they need to. Um, I've not had any patients who have needed to do that yet, uh, but certainly in the literature that is there and it's hard to predict when that will or won't happen. Uh, I think I may be getting ahead of myself. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll get to Botox a little bit more in just a minute so the neuromodulation um, is a neurostimulator you can kind of see what it looks like there Um, it's a very small device that's implanted in the posterior hip Um, the PTNS here's a picture of the PTNS again, uh, patients come, they sit in a chair they have the acupuncture needle placed in their inner ankle and it's a kind of uh, anti-grade neurostimulation of the uh, tibial nerve up to the pelvis Um, and then uh, Botox Uh, So, Botox is effective for about uh, eight to 14 months is is what Rosetta showed. Rosetta was a large multi-center trial published by the NIH. Um, Botox, I don't know if anyone here has had Botox, you don't have to tell me if you have or haven't, but I suspect people probably have. Botox, the way Botox works for cosmesis is it's injected typically into the face or forehead. It's a smooth smooth muscle relaxant and it causes wrinkles to go away because the muscles don't contract. Um, So this is not for cosmetics but it is for muscle contraction. So the Botox has a, a limited range of effect so you don't just go and put one injection into the bladder the injections are actually spread out throughout the bladder and in general they're described as being injected in 20 different places so it's a very small needle uh, patients get lidocaine uh, in the bladder prior to the procedure. Um, some patients don't feel anything some patients do feel something It's hard to predict who will and won't um, in general the procedure is very fast and you know it takes uh, you know maybe maybe two minutes and the benefits are you know again somewhere around on uh, here, you know, on, the, on this trial, you know, six to nine months in Rosetta, it was uh, eight to 14. So, uh, you know, if you could come and get an injection once a year or twice a year and not have to take any other medications and not have leakage episodes, not be running to the bathroom, I mean, that, that's a pretty appealing option. Um, uh, and you can get repeated doses. Um, and again, we already talked about the temporary retention risk of about 5% at three months. So, um, PTNS and Botox. Uh, have, uh, have been compared. There was a study that uh, we presented last week at the meeting that I was at. Uh, it was a randomized control trial comparing both. Um, for, over, for overactive bladder symptoms, both demonstrated improvements, so both worked well. Specific to urgency incontinence, which is what we're talking about today, uh, Botox worked better than, uh, the, than the, uh, the PTNS. Um, and this is very similar to the Rosetta trial, which was the NIH-funded trial. Um, both patients that got neuromodulation, the, the inner stem, as well as patients that got Botox, demonstrated significant improvements, uh, but the Botox performed a little bit better, and on patient scales, when patients asked, were asked which they preferred, Botox had slightly higher scores. Um, so, uh, we're now, I think, at the, the end of the uh, uh, presentation, so we're back to questions. Um, so, uh, or not quite, oh, shoot, sorry, got your hopes up. Uh, I think we're close, though. Uh, so this, this is a slide I was thinking about earlier. I thought it was closer to where I was talking before. But this just shows that the patients tend to, to stop their medications uh, uh, pretty quickly. You know, by six months to a year, you know, like 80-ish percent of patients have stopped their medications. Um, and again, we've talked about why compliance is poor, uh, because of uh, you know, expense or ineffectiveness, um, those types of things. Um, and this stuff I think we've already talked about. Uh, so how do we measure quality improvement? Uh, so there, there are a couple of different options. Uh, but it's important to, to measure improvement or to measure quality or you don't know if you're doing better or worse or if you should be improving or not. Um, so, so there are different options available. The AUA and uh, HEDIS both have uh, options. We'll talk about both. So the AUA has the AUA quality registry, the Aqua registry. This is uh, started I think in April of this year. They have uh, Measure 48 and Measure 50 that are looking specifically at whether patients are assessed for incontinence and then if they were offered treatment for said incontinence. So, you know, again, um, as we've discussed, a lot of patients, uh, you know, the vast majority of patients, uh, you know, many do not get treatment, they don't seek treatment, their providers don't offer them treatments for it if they do bring it up. Um, And then the, the, the HEDIS measures. Um, so, again, this is for mixed urinary incontinence or management of urinary incontinence in older adults. Um, and, again, the, the, the measures are discussing uh, incontinence and then if there's a treatment. So this is also very similar to the, the Aqua through the AUA. Um, and just to look at the, the HEDIS results, I mean, this shows that overall that uh, UI remains fairly static, right? There's not a lot of change in this, despite the fact that it's something that a lot of patients uh, suffer from. Um, Do you guys have any questions? Yes? Um, for the Aqua that's coming out from the AUA, that's a, it's a new initiative. There's also one through AUGS uh, that's the Acquire database. So those are, are newer. They're, they're, I think there are a lot of different theories as to why um, you know, patients do or don't ask and why patients, and if, if, if providers know about things. Uh, from the discussions I have in other contexts, uh, a lot of the issues I think surround patients' embarrassment a lot of patients are you know they don't talk to family or friends they don't talk to anyone about it and they're they're embarrassed to talk to their primary care doctor who they're seeing about other issues so i think that from from a patient perspective i think patient education or or education direct to patients and when i uh, see our hospital data or kind of more national data looking at uh, the treatment for pelvic floor disorders or urinary incontinence in general Uh, there is a projected uptick both from age, uh, aging population, which we know goes along with that, but also from direct to patient uh, uh, kind of educational campaigns. And as patients are aware that this is not an uncommon issue and that there are many treatment options available, it's thought that patients may seek care more readily. You know, as far as how to address the issue with the primary care docs and and that who are seeing patients in clinic, how to, to encourage them to ask more, I don't have a good answer for that. I I personally believe this is a very important issue or I wouldn't do what I do for a job, right? This is what I do. Uh, But I understand the time constraints and if you're trying to talk about diabetic management in, in a poorly compliant diabetic, um, that will impact bladder function, uh, but you know, the heart attack risk, the stroke risk, you know, the peripheral vascular disease, all these things that go along with it, I mean, probably the diabetes is, uh, you know, something, is something that it definitely needs to be addressed and they only have 15 minutes. So I, I don't know how to get over, over that, uh, the compliance with, with providers asking. Um, I think if there's a way, uh, you know, when things are measured and reported, um, in general, performance improves, right? And so if there's a way to record and track who has symptoms and who is being asked about symptoms, that, that could improve things. And that's what the HEDIS and the, the Aqua study, uh, the, the databases are intended to do. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, yeah. Yep. Um, you had mentioned behavioral health therapy and who is performing the behavioral th- therapy portion? I'm sorry, I couldn't Who's performing the behavioral health um, behavioral? therapy? Portion. Sure. So, behavioral therapy could be performed by um, anyone in clinic. You know, in our clinics, we have uh, advanced practice providers who who help us with a lot of this. Uh, physical therapists are part of our teams. We have we have a, a very um, we have a large group of providers who help with the, the patients that we see. In, in primary care, uh, you know there are patient handouts that can be given. Um, Ayuga is an international organization. OGS is a, is a national organization. AUA SuFu that we've discussed. They all have patient pamphlets or patient education. So it could be something as simple as giving a, a patient information. Um, there are a lot of apps actually available on, uh, on smart devices and that kind of thing. Again, I think that the question becomes how do patients know to ask or how do patients know where to look? Uh, but there are numerous resources available that could be used. Um, ideally, you know, primary care physicians would would be would have this in their armamentarium and would be able to discuss this with patients. Uh, but, again, uh, a- any provider can. I don't know if that answers your question. You did answer my question. Yeah. Okay. It, it is unfortunate, though, that it, it seems to be lost in this middle where either patients have to ask, doctors have, you know, practitioners have a reason for potentially not... Um, asking, but even the walking well as somebody, maybe it gets added to a checklist of the things that they're uh, talking about because they, you know, think that they're well, but these things tend to be underlying, so. so Uh, When I was a fellow, you know, we did a study on, uh, it was actually a medical student blood study, but just one question could be used to screen. Do you leak Mm -hmm. urine? Yeah, that's a pretty simple question and if the answer is yes then you could either refer or you know discuss options or provide information but it doesn't have to be a huge time intensive thing uh, but again it's just you know when you have so many things to look at I, I can see why it would be hard for for people to remember to do everything but an algorithm or a checklist would be helpful all right thank you all